In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. So God willing, we're going to continue studying the book of Second Kings. Last time we studied chapters 1 and 2, um, and uh, God willing, we'll study 3, 4, and 5 today. Um, does anyone want to recap for us some of the main points that happened in the first two chapters that we studied last time? Elijah was uh, taken up. Yeah, Elijah was taken up. That was like one of the most important things that happened. Um, Elijah was taken up, and Elisha, his disciple, was there to see him taken up. And Elijah had said that if God allowed Elisha to see him taken, then that means he would receive a double portion of his spirit as he had requested. And if you remember, what is what does it mean when he asked for a double portion of his spirit? So he would be like the firstborn, which would receive the double the inheritance of all of the other prophets. So it's like he is receiving the, the spirit of Elijah, Elijah to continue the ministry of Elijah. And certainly after this, we see in the chapters we're going to study today that Elisha um, serves a very prominent role. And he, um, he, he does many miracles and God is using him very prominently. Okay. <coughs> it says, now Jehoram, the son of Ahab became king over Israel at Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and reigned 12 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, but not like his father and mother, for he put away the sacred pillar of Baal that his father had made. So as we had mentioned before, at this time, there is uh, peace between the northern and the southern kingdoms. Okay, Jehoram, who was um, here the, the son of uh, Ahab, uh, he was, uh, sorry, the, the Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat in the south, married Ataliah, the daughter of Ahab from the north. So remember, there was two Jehorams. There was a Jehoram in the north and a Jehoram in the south. So the Jehoram from the south, who was the son of Jehoshaphat, he married the daughter of Ahab in the north. So it became like a, like a peace treaty between the two nations. Um, and this had several effects. So if you remember... The northern kingdom was the one who was the more wicked of the two, the one who had completely given itself over to idol worship. Um, uh, Jeroboam, the first king of the northern kingdom, he had set up uh, golden calves, two golden calves for the people to worship. Um, and, and so instead of them coming down to the kingdom of Judah to offer sacrifices in the temple, they would go and they would sacrifice to these golden calves. So the, and, and also Ahab, King Ahab, he was married to Jezebel, who was a priestess um, of the Sidonians. So she was very against the, 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 the Jewish worship and promoting idol worship. So the, the northern kingdom had been very much like entrenched in the idol worship. So at this point now that we have this kind of peace between the northern and the southern kingdom, it had a positive effect on Israel because it lessened the idol worship is what it says here he did evil in the sight of the lord but not like his father and his mother right so not like ahab and jezebel right but jehoram now he was um he 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 was not as bad as his parents were okay but at the same time it had a negative effect on the kingdom of judah because now the some of the baal worship that had been going on in the northern kingdom started to infiltrate the southern kingdom um as well nevertheless he persisted in the sins of Jeroboam, the, sons of ne the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. He did not depart from them. Okay, So remember, Jeroboam was the first king of the north. 
Now Misha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, and he regularly paid the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. But it happened when Ahab died that the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. Okay, so Moab was kind of like, if you want to call it, kind of like a vassal kingdom, meaning it was kind of under tribute to uh, the northern kingdom. So as long as King Ahab was alive, um, he would be paying this tribute, 100,000 lambs uh, and the wool of 100,000 rams to uh, Israel. Okay, But now that King Ahab had died, the Moabites rebelled against Israel and no longer wanted to be kind of like under their control and paying this tribute to them. So King Jehoram, this is the Jehoram of the north, went out of Samaria. Remember we said Samaria is the capital of the north. At that time and mustered all Israel. Then he went and sent to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, saying, The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against Moab? And he said, I will go up. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Then he said, Which way shall we go up? And he answered, By way of the wilderness of Edom. Okay, so the armies of both the north and the south now are going to be united together to go and attack the Moabites because they have rebelled against Israel. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. So they also, as they, they traveled through Edom, they also had the support of the Edomites, the king of Edom. And they marched on that roundabout route seven days, and there was no water for the army nor for the animals that followed them. So they found themselves on this path where there was no resources for them. There was no water for them to drink for the people or for the animals. Um, so it was very harsh, and they were, they were, they were suffering. Okay. And the king of Israel said, Alas, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. Okay, so, so like he, the, the, the king of Israel is thinking now that like God has brought like kind of a curse on us. Like we are traveling on this road and now we see that God is not going to allow us to, to succeed. And he is bringing us kind of like into this place where we don't have water to drink. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord by him? So one of the servants of the king of Israel answered and said, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here, who poured water on the hands of Elijah. Okay, so, so Jehoshaphat from the south, who is the more godly of a king, right? He, it came into his mind that we should inquire of God. That Why are we suffering on this road? And, and doing this without inquiring of God and seeking the guidance and the support of God. And this is something for us to meditate on, that sometimes we are in our life going down like a path that is filled with suffering of some sort, and maybe we don't immediately think, well, let me seek the, the counsel of God, let me seek the comfort from God, let me seek guidance from God, and instead we feel like we need to just continue down this road that we are walking and suffering and enduring, but without really stopping to think that God is present, like God can help me with the, the situation that, um, that I'm in. So he's remembering, uh, you know, let's, let's inquire of the Lord. So then one of the servants of the king of Israel, remember Elijah and Elisha were primarily in the northern kingdom. So um, one of the servants of the northern king um, said, uh, well, we, we, we know Elisha. Elisha is, is present, okay? We can inquire of him. Um, and so th they said that he was the one who poured water on the hands of Elijah, meaning he was the disciple of Elijah, um, whom everyone knew. And Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. Okay, so they went to go visit Elisha. 
Then Elisha said to the king of Israel, What have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. But the king of Israel said to him, No, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hands of Moab. So what was Elisha's response? And what is it, what's the significance of his response? When he said, Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. Rebuking him and telling him to do what? Yeah, he's saying he's saying if if you are so like entrenched in your idol worship and you have all of your false prophets, why are you coming to me when you could go to all of them? Right? Like you could go to why now are you deciding to come to me? When you are in need of help, then you come to me, but all the rest of the time you are going to these other prophets. If you remember at the end of First Kings when we spoke about the prophet Micaiah who um, was the only prophet of the Lord who said the truth to the king, King Ahab. And it says about him that King Ahab hated him because he was the one always telling the truth. He would rather go to all these other false prophets who would tell him what he wants to hear. So, so here also, like now that you're in trouble, now that you need the help of the Lord, you have come to me, but you have not come to me at any other time. So also something for us to meditate on. Sometimes we turn to God only in times of trouble when we are in dire need and we don't spend any other time with him. We only go to him. If anyone has ever had a friend, uh, maybe who never really contacted you at all, except when he needed something, um, this is kind of the same thing, right? Like, like you only call me when you need something from me. But other than that, you have no relationship with me and you don't care, you don't care at all about what's happening with me. You just care about what I can give you, right? And so this is here what Elisha is kind of rebuking the, the, the kings, right? The king of Israel. And he's saying to him, this um, and so the king of Israel is responding and he is saying um, the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab like he's saying God is leading us into a trap you know we, we, we are on our way to go and to defeat Moab but on our way we are now suffering because of these conditions um, along the way and so he's seeking this help from Elisha and Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, surely were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not look at you nor see you. So because Jehoshaphat, remember which kingdom is Jehoshaphat the king of? The south, king of Judah. Okay. So Jehoshaphat was a righteous king. And Elisha here was giving him honor. And he's saying, the only reason I'm even talking to you is because of King Jehoshaphat who is, who is with you. But if you are speaking for yourself, like King Jehoram, you are an idol worshiper, you're promoting idol worship, I, I have nothing to do with you, and he would not even give him any answer. But now bring me a musician. Then it happened, when the musician played, that the hand of the Lord came upon him. And he said, Thus says the Lord, Make this valley full of ditches. For thus says the Lord, You shall not see wind, nor shall you see rain, Yet the valley shall be filled with water, so that you, your cattle, and your animals may drink. So the first interesting thing here is God is so creative. Like, he's so creative in the way that he chooses to, to interact with us. Right? It's almost like every time he finds some new way. Like, here, what was the way that he chose to, to, to communicate to the people? Through what? Yeah, like through a song. Like he got a musician who started to play a song and sing a song 
And somehow it was through this music and through this song that God prophesied, uh, that, that God said, what is it that he wanted it to do? Okay? So this, I make this valley full of ditches. Uh, you shall not see wind, nor shall you see rain. All of that was through the music, like through the, 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 the musician who was saying this. It's really amazing, like how God like uses all kinds of different means to communicate with us. Um, even when we feel like we can't hear the voice of God, God communicates somehow. He, he, he communicates in a way we can understand. Um, so what did he ask them to do? He told them to make ditches. So what is the ditches going to do? Gather water. But he said there's not going to be rain. Who's going to fill them? Well, God will fill them. But how are they going to be filled? So you could think maybe uh, somehow there was a, some kind of flood that was going to happen. Maybe it was going to rain somewhere else on the water, like a flash flood. I don't know. But somehow these ditches were going to collect the water that perhaps was going to rain somewhere else, so it wasn't going to rain on them. But the water would come, fill, fill these trenches with water, um, and, and then they would be able to drink. Now the other interesting thing about this is that there was a role for the people to do, right? Like God always does the miraculous stuff that no human can do. But he always tells the people to do something small that they only they can do. Not, not only they can do, but that they are able to do. Like we look at the example maybe of when Christ lay, raised Lazarus from the dead and he was dead for four days in the tomb. And the Lord told the people, go and remove the stone from the tomb, right? But I mean, isn't the one who was able to raise Lazarus from the dead, isn't he also he like move the stone? Like is the stone the thing that he needed the help of the people? But he didn't need, but, but, like, why? So God is always asking us to participate and demonstrate faith in what we are doing. Like, for instance, when he healed the blind man, he, he, he told him, go and wash. Like, if the man said, what are you doing to me? Why are you putting this mud on my eyes? You know, forget you. You know, like, I don't want to go wash. Then he wouldn't have been healed, you know? Or, or later on, actually, we're going to read about Naaman the Syrian who had leprosy, who was healed, and he was told to go and wash in the Jordan River. So every time we see there being some kind of healing, there's always kind of an expression of faith that precedes the healing. And in this case, the expression of faith is, I want you to dig. You know, imagine these people who are very parched, they're thirsty, they very, very thirsty and tired from all of this marching, right? And now they're going to be like, okay, now we want you to dig big, big trenches and holes. Like that's not an easy thing them to do at that moment and if they didn't believe that there actually be water there would actually be a solution to their problem um then they wouldn't have done it right they would have they, they wouldn't have done it you know like uh, peter and andrew and the rest of the fishermen if they didn't believe that christ would allow them to be able to catch this fish after a long day uh, a long night of working they wouldn't have gone out into the deep and cast the net again and then ca caught the fish so in everything god is doing his his role the thing that no human can do but he doesn't do it alone. He always wants us to participate with him in it. Even when you think about like the sacraments. The sacraments is there is a miraculous part that only God does, but there is a human participation. Like, you know, in baptism, we get the water and the tub and we pray and we put oil in it and we do all this stuff in it. It's a human actions, right? The person submits to going into the water. But the actual spiritual work that is done in baptism, that is a mystery that no one can understand or comprehend or do or even see, Right, is something that is done only by God. No one else can do, but God does it only when we've done our part. So if the person says, "No, I'm not going to get in the water," 
right? Okay, then you can't be baptized. Is it possible for God to send the same spiritual work on that person, um, even if they don't get into water? Of, co of course he could do it. Like he has the ability to, d to do it. Like for instance, when we consume him in the form of like the bread and the wine, right? His body and blood. There's a human action, right, that we are doing. Couldn't he have given us the same blessing just miraculously without having us to do anything? He could have, right? But he doesn't, right? He says you have a role and your role demonstrates your faith, right, in it. And if you don't believe and you don't do it, then you won't get the benefit, right, of it. So here it's the same. B b dig the trenches and, and wait and see what I will do. And this is a simple matter in the sight of the Lord. He will also deliver the Moabites into your hand. Also you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city and shall cut down every good tree and stop up every spring of water and ruin every good piece of land with stones. Okay, so he's, he's saying God is going to give you the water, okay, but he's also going to grant you victory over the Moabites. Now it happened in the morning when the grain offering was offered that suddenly water came by way of Edom and the land was filled with water. So again, th there was some water that came in the land, maybe because of a f some flood of rain happened on the mountains or something else. And when all the Moabites heard that the kings had come up to fight against them, all who were able to bear arms and older were gathered, and they stood at the border. So the Moabites now have word that these kings are coming to fight them, and they're all like now getting ready. Then they rose up early in the morning, and the sun was shining on the water. And the Moabites saw the water on the other side as red as blood. And they said, This is blood. The kings have surely struck swords and have killed one another. Now therefore Moab to the spoil. So they thought to themselves, when they saw all of this, uh, this water on the ground, that the sun was shining on it in such a way to make it look red, and they assumed that all of the armies had killed each other. Okay? And so now they are coming out to take the spoils of these armies that they believe now um, that are dead. Okay, So another interesting thing here is the means by which that God uh, used to grant victory, right? because we're going to see now that how they're going to win, to grant victory to these kings was actually through the need that they had. Like they had a need for water. right? They were thirsty. They had a need for water. So they asked God to solve the problem for them. God gave them the solution. The solution was dig the trenches. And then the water came. And then that same water is what looked like blood. So it causes the Moabites to think that the kings had been defeated and they came out unprepared. So the need itself that they had, which was the need for the water, was actually the same thing that, that God used in order to grant them victory over their enemies. Okay. So again, maybe sometimes we ask, why is it that God allows me to go like with, with some kind of need for a time that is unmet, right? Well, maybe God is waiting for the opportune time to grant me the need, to grant me the thing that, I, that, I, that I'm asking of him and that I will receive a blessing even greater than what I asked. So when they came to the camp of Israel, Israel rose up and attacked the Moabites so that they fled before them and they entered their land killing the Moabites. Okay, so... Um, the, when the Moabites came, the Israelites were still there, um, and they were able to destroy them. Then they destroyed the cities, and each man threw a stone on every good piece of land and filled it. And they stopped up all the springs of water and cut down all the good trees. 
but they left the stones of Kir Haraseth intact. However, the slinger surrounded and attacked it. Okay, Kir Haraseth was the name of of, of a city that w- that was there, and they're throwing all of these stones on all this land like they're devastating the land, right? So the the land is not going to be useful. They're stopping up all the springs of water. They cut down all the good trees. They're th- they're they're making it to be a desolate land, so that the Moabites cannot um, rise up again. And when the king of Moab saw that the battle was too fierce for him, he took with him 700 men who drew swords to break through to the king of Edom, but they could not. Then he took his eldest son, who would have reigned in his place, and offered him as a burnt offering upon the wall. And there was great indignation against Israel, so they departed from him and returned to their own land. So remember, these these people who were pagans and worshipping all of these gods, they believed that their gods would respond to them when they offered sacrifices and sometimes even human sacrifices. So this was not um, a very like strange thing that they would offer um, like a child as a sacrifice, thinking that the gods would respond to this. So even this, you see like the depravity of the mind that he took his son and he offered him um, as a burnt sacrifice, hoping that his god would, res- would, would, would answer. Okay. <coughs> Any questions so far? Okay, chapter four. Chapter four highlights um, several uh, several miracles that we're going to see from Elisha. But before we uh, dive into that, um, let's just recap so far all of the miracles that Elisha has done up until this point. Okay, so the first was. Do you remember what the first? What was the first miracle that Elisha did after Elijah was taken up? Hmm? Crossing the Jordan. So he took the mantle of Elijah the cloak of Elijah, and he hit the Jordan with it. It's It split, so he was able to go back across the Jordan. That was the first miracle. What was the second miracle? Before the bears. The water. So when they went to the city of Jericho, there was water that was, um, that was uh, like um, polluted, polluted water, like poisonous. <coughs> so he took some water and he put salt in the water and he mixed it and he poured it into the water to clear to purify the water. Okay, so that was the second miracle. The third one was the bears. What was the bears? Maldibus. So there was some group of youth that were making fun of Elijah. And and then these two bears came and they they mauled those youths who were mocking him. Okay, so that was the third one. The fourth one is what we just saw: is the um, the, the the miraculous water that filled the trenches. Okay, so now we're going to see in this chapter more miracles of Elisha that are more geared toward like the spiritual ministry, like the personal, um, like 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 fulfilling the intimate needs of individuals. Um, we're going to see that here. So it says, A certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha, saying, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord, and the creditor is coming to take my two sons to be his slaves. So Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? And she said, Your maidservant has nothing in the house but a jar of oil. Then he said, go borrow vessels from everywhere, from all your neighbors, empty vessels. Do not gather just a few. And when you have come in, you shall shut the door behind you and your sons, then pour it into all those vessels and set aside the full ones. 
So she went from him and shut the door behind her and her sons, who brought the vessels to her, and she poured it out. Now it came to pass, when the vessels were full, that she said to her son, Bring me another vessel. And he said to her, There is not another vessel. So the oil ceased. Then she came and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil, and pay your debt, and you and your sons live on the rest. Okay, so, so this woman... Um, whose, whose husband had died, didn't have any money. She was going to sell her sons as slaves. But Elisha said, no, go and collect all of these vessels. And then there was going to be this miraculous um, filling of the vessels with oil. Go sell the oil, pay your debt, so that you do not have to sell your sons as slaves. Okay, what does this miracle remind us of? The miracle that Elijah did with the other widow of Zarephath, okay, where he multiplied the flour and the oil because it was during a famine and there was no food so that they could eat and that Elijah, Elijah himself would eat until the famine was done, right? So in both cases, there was a widow. In both cases, there was a multiplication of something, whether it's the flour and the oil in Elijah's case or here just the oil in order to save this woman, okay? So again, you're going to see that there is a similarity between a lot of the things that Elisha is doing and things that Elijah had done. Remember, Elijah, Elisha received the double portion of the spirit of Elisha. There is a lot of similarities um, between them. Now it happened one day. Yeah. Something about this miracle as well that I had heard. Sure. Um, I remember hearing that the, the in this miracle, one very special aspect of it is the fact that what limited the miracle was the was the number of jars that the woman offered not the amount of oil so so it says that he uh when she when she finished when all the jars were full she said go find more and he said no so that and then the oil ceased so it's the contemplation being that god wants to give and he has infinite amounts to give but what limits the giving is often how willing we are to receive that's very nice yeah thank you <coughs> Um, so it says, Now it happened one day that Elisha went to Shunem, where there was a notable woman, and she persuaded him to eat some food. So it was, as often as he passed by, he would turn there to eat some food. Okay, and Shunem, this is um, a region in the, in the tribe of Issachar. Okay, this is, um, so this is in Israel. Um, and also we see similarity here. Just as with the widow of Zarephath, she had made a room for him that he could come, he could eat, and he could rest. So also this woman is, is, is offering the same here for Elisha. And he said to her husband, Look now, I know that this is a holy man of God who passes by us regularly. Please let us make a small upper room on the wall and let us put a bed for him there and a table and a chair and a lampstand. So it will be, whenever he comes to us, he can turn in there. And it happened one day that he came there and he turned into the upper room and lay down there. Then he said to Gehazi, his servant, Call this Shunammite woman. When he had called her, she stood before him. And he said to him, Say now to her, Look, you have been concerned for us with all this care. What can I do for you? Do you want me to speak on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? She answered, I dwell among my own people. So he said to her, What then is to be done for her? And Gehazi answered, Actually, she has no son, and her husband is old. So he said, Call her. When he had called her, she stood in the doorway. Then he said, About this time next year you shall embrace a son. And he said, No, and she said, No, my lord, man of God, do not lie to your maidservant. 
But the woman conceived and bore a son at the, uh, when the appointed time had come of which Elisha had told her. And the child grew. Now it happened one day when he went out to his father to the reapers, and he said to his father, My head, my head. So he said to, to a servant, Carry him to his mother. When he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her knees till noon and then died. So she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, shut the door upon him, and went out. Then she called to her husband and said, Please send me one of the young men and one of the donkeys that I may run to the man of God and come back. So he said, Why are you going to him today? It is neither the new moon nor the Sabbath. And she said, It is well. So so, so this, so Elisha, seeing the kindness of this woman, and, and pr that, that even without being asked, she prepared for him a room and a place for him to rest and gave him food. So she asked her, what, what is it that I can do for you? Okay. And the woman was very simple. She's, she's saying, you know, I, I, I have everything that I need. But Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, said, but she, does, she's, she doesn't have a son. And so he told her that she would have a son in a year, and indeed she had a son. And then after he grew, so now it's several years later, after he grew, he, um, he had some kind of pain in his head, and he died. Okay, And so now um, the woman took him, put him on the bed of Elisha. What does this remind us of? Elijah. Because Elijah also, when the, son, when the son of the widow died, he told her, go and put him on my bed. Okay, so she, 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 she's doing that. Um, and then she is seeking, she's going to go and find him. She's going to go and find Elisha. Okay, um, and her husband, and so notice at this point, she's not even explaining like to her husband, where are you going? Or where she is going. He's saying to her, why are you going him now? Like it's not a, it's not a feast day, it's not a Sabbath day. Why are you going to go visit Elisha, right? And, and she, she didn't even say to him, what is it that happened? She said, it is well, okay? Then she saddled the donkey and said to her servant, drive and go forward. Do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. And so she departed and went to the man of God at Mount Carmel. So it was when the man of God saw her afar off that he said to his servant Gehazi, look, the Shunammite woman. So you see how far, you can see here on this map, like how far that, that distance was from Shunem there to Mount Carmel. Please run now to meet her and say to her, Is it well with you? Is it well with your husband? Is it well with the child? So Elisha sees this woman coming from a faraway distance, and he is anxious to hear like what is her, like what is wh like what she is coming for, like wanting to make sure she is she is good. And she answered, Is it is well? Now when she came to the man of God at the hill, she caught him by the feet, but Gehazi came near to push her away. But the man of God said, Let her alone, for her soul is in deep distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. So she said, did I ask a son of my Lord? Did I not say, do not deceive me? Then he said to Gehazi, get yourself ready and take my staff in your hand and be on your way. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not answer him, but lay my staff on the face of the child. So the woman is coming like very sorrowful and she's saying, didn't I tell you I don't like, like, like don't deceive me? Like, you're the one who said that I would have a son. I didn't even ask for a son, and now the son has died. Like, why is it that you've allowed me to go through this great suffering when this isn't something I was asking for from the beginning? And this is why she came to Elisha to tell him this. So Elisha, of course, now understanding what had happened, he told Gehazi the servant to take his staff and to run ahead and to return back to Shunem again and place the staff on the child so that he can be healed. And the mother of the child said, As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. 
So he arose and followed her. Now Gehazi went on ahead of them and laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was neither voice nor hearing. Therefore he went back to meet him and told him, The child has not awakened. When Elisha came into the house, there was the child lying dead on his bed. And he went in, therefore, shut the door behind the two of them, and prayed to the Lord. And he went up and lay on the child, and put his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands. And he stretched her, himself out on the child, and the flesh of the child became warm. He returned and walked back and forth in the house, and again went up and stretched himself out on him. Then the child sneezed seven times, and the child opened his eyes. And he called Gehazi and said, Call the Shunammite woman. So he called her, and when she came in to when she came in to him, he said, Pick up your son. So she went in, fell at his feet, and bowed to the ground, then she picked up her son and went out. So again, very, very similar to what we read about Elijah and how he raised the son of the widow from the dead. He laid on him, right? And he made kind of like the sign of the cross on him, which was a symbol of the 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 incarnation and the crucifixion and how like the lord when he in his incarnation he, ad he he took our nature and he gave it life like he enlivened us he he ro he rose us from the dead by uniting with us and so this is what is happening here it is like symbolically elisha is transferring his life to the life of the child this is why he is laying on him and and doing this um, and we spoke about this the first time with elijah okay And Elisha returned to Gilgal, and there was a famine in the land. Now the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, and he said to his servant, Put on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. So one went out into the field to gather herbs, and found a wild vine, and gathered from it a lapful of wild gourds, and came and sliced them into the pot of the stew, though they did not know what they were. Okay, so there was famine. Remember we said who the sons of the prophets were? They were like the prophets in training. Okay, so they were sitting before Elisha, um, and now they are going to eat together. Okay, so Elisha said, uh, boil a stew so all of these sons of the prophets may eat. And they gathered the herbs, okay, but the herbs, um, they, were, they were poisoned. Then they served it to the men to eat. Now it happened as they were eating the stew that they cried out and said, man of God, there is death in the pot, and they could not eat it. So he said, then bring some flour. And he put it into the pot and said, Serve it to the people that they may eat. And there was nothing harmful in the pot. Then a man came from Baal Shalisha and brought the man of God bread of the first fruits, twenty loaves of barley bread, and newly ripened grain in his knapsack. And he said, Give it to the people that they may eat. But his servant said, What shall I set this before one hundred men? He said again, Give it to the people that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left over. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left over according to the word of the Lord. Okay, so again, this is, um, what does this remind us of? The feeding of the multitude, right? And by, by Christ, like they multiply the small amount of food to feed all. So you see all of these miracles now um, that is being described in this chapter are all the ways that Elisha is serving and helping people like on a very personal individual level like we saw the like the big miracles where he's like dividing the jordan river and he is like you know bringing water for an army and like all this and the same god who is like taking care of the, like the big details like this okay he's also like caring about these very very small things 
like okay these people are hungry they need to eat okay or this 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 woman she her son is is sick and he and he needs to be healed um you know or or she needs money so he brought brought her the oil like god is paying attention to the smallest details um of all of these people and and caring for them and again it's something for us to contemplate is how much is god aware and interested in the small details of my life that he is seeking to to reveal himself in them and maybe again the way that god reveals himself is in the in the problems right like the times where here like all these people how is it they saw the glory of god manifested they saw it because they had a problem like there was some big problem that they had and seeking god finding the solution is actually drawing them closer to god um, maybe this is again how we draw closer to god is we see that there we have a problem and we see how god works in it how god how god um, transforms it and, and changes it okay any questions so far okay chapter 5 is a famous story um, also uh, like the individual work um, with a single person um, of this famous man who is Naaman the commander of the Syrian army so it says Naaman commander of the army of the king of Syria was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master his master is the king of Syria here because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He also was a mighty man of valor, but a leper. Okay, So it's likely that this was the early stages of his leprosy. Like he was still being able to work as in his position as the commander of the army, but he, he had this leprosy starting to develop on his skin, which would soon prevent him from being able to serve in, in this role. And of course he would become an outcast and no one would, would touch him or be near him. And the Syrians had gone out on raids and had brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife. Then she said to her mistress, If only my master were with the prophet who was in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. So it's, it's, it's kind of amazing that, that this girl who was taken captive, kidnapped from her home, is the one who is giving guidance and advice to uh, Naaman's wife telling her in what way he could be healed from from his leprosy. Um, Bishop Caesarius, he says this about the girl. He says, that little captive girl was a symbol of the church of God that was assembled from the Gentiles, enslaved before to sin, when she did not have the freedom of grace, by whose ordinance the foolish nations heard the word of prophecy, in which they formerly doubted, but coming to believe in it, they had to cleanse themselves from the defilement of sin. So he's saying she is representative of the church who was made of the Gentiles, okay? And, and, that, and, that, and, and so in order for, for those Gentiles to enter into the church, okay, they, they had to first be cleansed from the defilement of sin or, or the leprosy. So it's like Naaman is, 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 is um, representing the Gentiles who are coming to the church. Because this girl is from Israel, so she is like representing the church. And uh, Naaman is the Gentile who is defiled in sin, which is the leprosy. He's coming to be healed and then entering into um, the church. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus said the girl who is from the land of Israel. Then the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. So they listened to her, and he's going to go. Then he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, Now be advised, when this letter comes to you, that I have sent Naaman my servant to you, 
that you may heal him of his leprosy. So what do you think about this letter? So you're saying the king of Syria is threatening the king of Israel? Because why? Because he's saying, um, I've sent my servant to you that you may heal him. Okay. Also shows the reputation of Israel, right? Because he's, he's, why would he send them to Israel? To, to Like it means he believes in this, that, that, that there is a chance that, it's not even that you may try to say to heal him. So yeah, so he believes that there's going to be healing that's going to happen. Um, and maybe the reputation of the prophets of Israel is known, okay? He's seeking help. But who is he seeking help from? From the king, right? Like, the king is the most prominent figure, right, in Israel, and so he's sending the king this letter. But, but actually, the king is not the one who's able to heal him, Right? So maybe he is the most prominent one, but he is not the one actually who's able to heal. You maybe like uh, if you remember the story of the moving the Mokotta mountain, right? So the the Pope is there, and all the people are there, and and Simon the Tanner is there, who is just this poor simple man, and it is through the prayers of Simon the Tanner that God is moving the mountain, right? But what do you see in front of you? You see the Pope, like 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 the the, the, the he's, he even Simon the Tanner said like you stand in front of me. He doesn't want to seek the attention to himself, so everyone's going to look at the Pope and say, well, the Pope is the one. It is through the prayers of the Pope that this is happening. But no, actually, it was through the prayers of Simon the Tanner. Right? Um, sometimes we perceive that the person with the most prominent role is also like the most righteous or is the one who is doing the most or in the eyes of God, he is the most holy. Right? But it's not so. Right? In the story of St. Macarius the Great, when he was convinced that he was the most righteous person, and then God showed him these two women who are more righteous than him, even though they're living in the world, right? So, so it's, it's here, the, the king, in his mind, it's like, well, the king of Israel is surely the one, the most powerful one in all of Israel. He would be the one to be able to heal him, right? He would know what to do, right? But then you see, like, the response that the king says. So it says, and it happened when the king of Israel read the letter that he tore his clothes and said, am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. You know, it's like you're asking me to do something impossible. I can't, I can't do it. I can't do what you're asking. But of course, when he goes to Elisha, Elisha knows exactly what to do, right? Because this is, this is, uh, this is what Elisha does best. So it was when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Meaning, like, Elisha here is representing the godliness of the nation. He is representing what the nation is capable of doing when it is following God, when it is submitting to God, right? Because God desires to serve and to be the God of all of these people, but because they are all sinning against him, because they are all rejecting him, right? This is why we, we don't see that God is working easily with all of the people, because no one is, no one is accepting him. But here, uh, Elisha, as the servant of God, as this righteous man, that we see God was working with him so easily because Elisha is submitting to God, 
He says, come, let, send him to me, and then he will see really what God can do, right? To, to glorify God, not to glorify himself. Then Naaman went with his horses and chariot, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. So Elisha didn't even go out to meet him. He sent a messenger to him. He says, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times. But Naaman became furious and went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, He will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. Right? Like he was upset. Like he, he, he didn't even come out to me. Right? Why do you think he was so, he was so angry? Okay, so he felt it was disrespectful. Maybe it reminds us of the what we spoke about last time about the groups of 50 that came to Elijah telling him come right um and 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 but but Elijah did not Elijah did not go with them and actually those men died right because they are they are placing themselves of like higher rank than the prophet of God okay why else would he be furious Sharif said on the group wrong expectations Wrong expectations. Yeah. So I mean, he was expecting that the pr that Elijah would come. Elijah would come and just like put his hand, and he would be healed immediately. Lo remember what we said earlier. God is always asking us to do something, right? So of course, Naaman already traveled all of this way, but God here is saying, "No, I want you to do something else. I want you to go to the Jordan, and I want you to wash there." Okay. Whereas maybe in the mind of Naaman, that wasn't. Uh, that wasn't what he was expecting to happen, okay? Um, also, maybe he's thinking to himself, like, what is so special? Actually, this is what he's going to say. It's like, what is so special about the Jordan River? Like, I could have bathed in any river. Why did I have to come all the way over here in order to bathe in a river, okay? The, greatest, the, the, the ones with the greatest faith are the ones that believe that God can do the work even from a distance, Right, so like here, for instance, the fact that Elisha doesn't come out, he's thinking, no, Elisha himself has to physically come out and touch me so that I would be healed. But but God here is saying, no, you don't even need Elisha to do that. It, it reminded me of um, the Roman centurion in the New Testament, whose servant was sick, right, and um, and he wanted Christ to heal him, and Christ was actually willing to go to him to his house, but the centurion said, no, I'm not worthy that you come to my house. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. And then Christ was marveling at his faith. It's like I haven't seen faith like this even in Israel, right? Like to, to, to truly believe that, no, I don't even need you to physically come. I don't even need you to touch him. I just need you to, to, to do it even from a distance. Like that's how much faith that he had. And really like in the, in the New Testament, this is the kind of faith that we are called to have. Um, not the faith of seeing the miracles, right? but the faith of believing even when we do not see. Like the, in the reading that we read on Thomas Sunday when the Lord was speaking to the disciples, says, blessed is he who has not seen and yet believed, right? The one who doesn't have to, to handle, the one who doesn't have to touch, the one who doesn't have to see, but simply believes that God is capable and able and willing to do all of these things even without even being present, right? And so this is the, 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 the miracle that is going to happen with Naaman is that he is going to be healed even without ever having seen Elisha. Um, are not the Abana and the Farpar 
the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Like he wasn't even going to go. Like he had gone all this way, but he was so angry. And he said, I'm not even going to do what, what I've been asked to do. And the servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? Like he says, like, if he would have told you to, to like, go climb a mountain or if he had told you to do some great work, and if you, if, if you do that, then you would be worthy to be healed, then you would have tried to do it. But how much more then if he just tells you a simple thing, just go wash in the river and be clean? There's, it's not difficult at all. So he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the sayings of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. And he returned to the man of God, he and all his aides, and came and stood before him. And he said, Indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now, therefore, please take a gift from your servant. So here he, he went even to a, uh, to a step further in his, in his belief, saying there is no other God. You know, there we see many examples in the scripture about people who are pagan, who believe in God because of the miracles that they see, along with the other gods. Like even like Nebuchadnezzar, for instance, after he sees all the miracles that God had done with Daniel, he believed in God. And he even wrote like this letter to all of his kingdom saying that everyone should worship this God. But he didn't, he didn't stop believing in the other gods, right? But he, he you know, as a, as a result. Whereas here, um, Naaman is saying there is no God in all the earth. The only God is, is this God, after he has gone through this experience. But he said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. So Naaman is, is offering this gift to the prophet, and the prophet is refusing. Origen, he says, no one was purified except Naaman the Syrian, who was not from Israel. Notice that those who are cleansed by the spiritual Elisha, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, are purified in the sacrament of baptism and are cleansed from the literality of the law. Naaman went down into the Jordan and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. Who is this little child but he who is born in the font of renewal? So he's saying all of us who go through the baptismal waters, we come out as though we are like this little child, like brand new and renewed. Um, and, 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 and that the old has passed away and that all things have become new. We have become a new creation. So this is, again, a symbol of the waters of baptism and the renewal that happens, that while we come into the waters of baptism defiled with the spiritual leprosy, but we come out of the waters renewed again um, and clean. Okay. So, um, and again, Elisha here refusing to take any gift. So Naaman said, then, if not... Please let your servant be given two mule loads of earth, for your servant will no longer offer either burnt offering or sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. So why is Naaman asking to be given two mule loads of earth? Because he has to go back, so he's kind of taking Israel with him. Yeah. He's taking the land of Israel with him. And this could also kind of be based on a wrong assumption, that the only way to worship the God of Israel is, um, you know, is, is in the land of Israel. 
right? So he's he, he's thinking like, okay, the only place that where the only place where this God has dominion is in Israel. So I have to take Israel with me so that I can continue to pray to him. It's a limited it's a limited faith, yes, you know, but but he, he still believed enough to take the the dirt, okay? Um and he saw like the holiness of it. You know, he saw he saw like how special this place is where God dwells and 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 the prophets of God are. He wanted to bring it um with him. Saint Ephraim the Syrian, he said his request to take two mule loads of the dust of the promised land was intended to bring shame upon Israel that a foreigner believed that even the dust of the earth of their land is holy by God, while the Hebrews did not believe that God dwells in his prophets. You know, like the, 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 the Hebrew people, the Israelites at this time, they were worshiping, uh, they were worshiping idols and, uh, and doing all these things, whereas this person coming from the outside, coming into Israel, saw and believed in the God that even the Israelites themselves didn't believe. And, and this also says something about familiarity. You know, sometimes people who are in the church for their entire life grow cold in their faith because everything has become so familiar and and they see the rules and they see the restrictions and they see the the, the demands that is placed upon us in our faith and the things we should and should not do and this is all they see and maybe forgetting like what um like what it says in the book of revelation um that you have forgotten your first love like what is the good things that we have receiving from god all the time to meditate on them, not just focusing on the things that are restrictive or the things that we don't like, but to focus on like the joys and the, the, the real faith. Whereas a person maybe who is coming to the church as a convert and seeing all of this from the first time, they marvel at what it is and the, and the beauty of it and, and the love of God and they feel moved with like emotion toward God in the midst of all of this process of like, coming to the church. So it says something like the people who have received the most blessing in all the earth out of all the nations of the world were the Israelite people, that God was with them from the very beginning, that God sent them the prophets, that God protected them, that God spoke to them. God did all these things for them, and yet in the end they were rebellious against him all the way to the end. Whereas those people who, the Gentiles, who never had the benefit of all of these things, actually the church ended up becoming a Gentile church. You know, the vast majority of the people who became Christians were Gentiles. Very few of the Jews actually became Christians, right? Even though it was to them that all the prophets were sent. It was to them that all the scripture was written. It was to them that everything was given for thousands of years, and yet they are the ones who rejected, right? Whereas those who never received any of that, they are the ones who accepted. They're the ones who believed. Yet in this thing, may the Lord pardon your servant, when my master goes into the temple of Rimmon to worship there, and he leans on my hand, and I bow down in the temple of Rimmon, when I bow down in the temple of Rimmon, may the Lord please pardon your servant in this thing. What is he saying? probably anticipates that he's gonna have to like worship with the rest of the people of his land so he's apologizing in advance yeah for his sins yeah so he's um he's considering that he has like a kind of political obligation as the commander of the army 
that whenever the king of Syria goes into the temple of this god, this god Rimen, okay, that that he is going to participate in this ceremonial kind of act of worship for this god. And so he is saying um, that he is like he's he's in advance, like like saying, I, I know that this is what's going to happen, but please pardon me. And and Elisha responded and he said, Go in peace. And so he departed from him a short distance. Okay. Um, but he promised not to offer any burnt offerings or to sacrifice uh, except to, to, to the Lord. And Elisha here is consenting. So what do you think about this? Well, he's, he said, go in peace, right? So like he didn't rebuke him by, by saying, no, you can't do that. He said, go in peace, like, okay. You know, like the story of the three youth in the book of Daniel, where the king says, you know, anyone who does not bow down before the golden image that I have made is going to be thrown into the fiery furnace. So couldn't have those three youth. They just said, well, we're going to we're going to bow, but we're not worshiping like we're just going to. It's a bodily posture, but we're not actually worshiping. We just want to save ourselves from the fiery furnace. Right. Couldn't they have done so? I, I, I think maybe the expectation of Elijah of Elisha of Naaman at this point was already exceeded in the sense that the man took a leap forward. Mm. And so at this point it is not helpful or to say no, you need to be like the three youths who like at this point you are good for you for believing at this point this is good go in peace go and continue in what you're doing worship god in the temple of ramon and so he's basically it's not that he has relative standards he has objectively um like fixed standards but i think we also have to have the right expectations of people depending on where they are in the journey so good Right, so he had to be realistic. What is it that he can expect from this man? He hasn't gone through any education. He has never read the scriptures. He doesn't know anything. All that his experience was is they had leprosy, and then he came to the Jordan River, and he washed, and he doesn't have leprosy now. He didn't automatically become a theologian or, or, or have, like, this deep faith or understanding. So he is trying to, you know, he is trying with what his knowledge is the best that he can to do the right thing. Um, and maybe it's incomplete but his heart was in the right place. So maybe the same exact scenario, if it had been given to the three youth or somewhere else, maybe it would have been rejected, right? But here it is accepted. So it's important also for us, like, again, like the example of like someone coming to the church who's brand new, like maybe they're not able from day one to fast all the fasts to do everything that we're called to do, right? But it's small steps, Right, And so this is a big step, actually, that he took for him to say that I no longer believe in any other God except the God of Israel, that I'm going to bring the dirt of Israel back with me, that I'm going to not offer sacrifices to any God except him. So there was a big, like, there was a big improvement. There's a big gain that's happened 
right? So even though, like, you could have imagined a scenario where he said, you know what, I'm renouncing, you know, my position as the commander of the army so that I never have to go into this temple. Like, you could have, that, that could have happened, theoretically, right? But maybe he's not at that point, right? He's not at that point yet. But but Elisha looked at all that had happened and he approved of it and said, yes, this is good. But Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, look, my master has spared Naaman the Syrian while not receiving from his hands what he brought. But as the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something from him. So Gehazi pursued Naaman. When Naaman saw him running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, All is well. My master has sent me, saying, Indeed, just now two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the mountains of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of garments. So Naaman said, Please take two talents. And he urged him and bound two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of garments and handed them to two of his servants, and they carried them on ahead of him. When he came to the citadel, he took them from his hand and stored them away in the house. Then he let the men go, and they departed. Now he went in and stood before his master. Elisha said to him, Where did you go, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant did not go anywhere. So what is the motivation of this servant, Gehazi? Why did he do this? Okay, And what was the, the sin that he, that he committed? Like what do you think? Like what, was his, what was his reasoning that he did this? Services, I guess you could say. And so he was, uh, in a way, receiving some sort of uh, reimbursement, but like not to Elisha, but rather to like you know just a as a good deed in a way. Possibly. Okay. But but what was in his heart was he w when he was asking this? Oh, there's no way he's gonna leave without paying. That's that's how I understood it. Like, there's no we no way you're gonna leave without paying. And who's benefiting from this gift? The servant himself, right? Like like th this whole thing was a lie. What he said about like there's these sons of the prophets that came and all that. This is just a story that he made up. Right in the end, who's going to take the gifts? Gehazi's going to take the gifts. So if you imagine this scene, because this is the first time we really hear much about Gehazi. I mean, in terms of like, like he he was there before. He's the one who said the woman doesn't have a son, and he had El Elisha give her a son and all that. <coughs> but this is the first time we see anything negative about him, right? But what what picture does it paint in your mind about who this man is, and what is he doing? Pay for miracles. Yeah. And why would he do that? So he gets commissioned. Yeah, so he feels like they deserve payment. You know, like you think about it, like Elisha, what is he getting for all this work that he's doing? And God tells him, go travel to Syria, okay? And go to Syria. Then he says, go to this woman and heal her and he'll do that. And go over here and do that and that. Right? Like he's, he's constantly everywhere, right? And he's always helping people. He's never asking for anything for himself. He's not getting really any 
you know, compensation for anything that he is doing. So this servant, Gehazi, is maybe thinking in his mind, it's like, well, we deserve something. Like, we deserve some payment. And especially when he's offering it for free, it's not like we asked for it. You know, it's not like we told him, please give us this. He offered. He said, we'll give, we'll give you anything. And, and you said, no. You said, I'm not going to take anything. You know, maybe it also kind of reminded me of Judas. You know, like Judas, when he is the one who is taking from the money box. And he is benefiting from the service of Christ because he is taking from the money box. And the moment that he kind of triggered in his mind that he's going to betray him was what? What, I what is it that happened right before the betrayal? The woman poured the fragrant oil, which was very expensive, right? And the apostles and Judas said what? Why didn't we sell this and give it to the poor? But then it said, but actually he didn't care for the poor. He cared about taking the money for himself. So when he saw that, Christ was like wasting the opportunity of, of, of enriching himself and enriching Judas, right? This is what triggered him to be like, that's it. I can't handle this, right? And that's when... After that, he said, okay, I can't continue, like, I can't continue being this man's disciple. So here, Gehazi is like, all this, you can kind of sense in him that there is, like, this pent-up frustration, that he is going along with Elisha everywhere, but he feels inside, like, this is unfair. What are we getting for being good? What are we getting from doing the right thing? And maybe, again, as Christians, and especially those who have been in the church for a long time, kind of like the, the parable of the workers of the vineyard, of the 11th hour workers, right? It's like those who have been working from the first hour are, are thinking to themselves, well, I deserve, like, I deserve the denarius. Like, I deserve the payment. I deserve to, you know, I've always been good. I've always done the right thing. I deserve this. And, and we see this here. We see this in, 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 in here. Like, he, he's saying, like, no. And he, he wasn't willing to go and talk to Elisha about it openly and to tell him, well, why didn't we take anything? No, he, but he secretly went and he took for himself, right? So the first thing is he sought the price for something he didn't even do. Gehazi's not the one who healed Naaman. So if anyone were to deserve the payment, shouldn't it be Elisha? So why are you going and getting it from behind his back? Okay. Second thing is this is a free gift from God. This is something offered for free. You know, like in the church, like we don't pay the priest to go and pray for them, right? Like this is a this is a free gift that's given by God. It's free, right? Um, also, he's gonna he's trying to cover up the situation by lying, and he is making up a story saying, "Oh, you know, uh, there are these sons of the prophets that came, and so we need some resources for them." The love of money, right? That he has this desire for it. Um, and so, so like, like we see this is the f his fall. This is his moment of fall. And maybe we don't read about any of his struggles that he had with this prior to this, but this is definitely not just like uh, all of a sudden in, the, in this moment that all, all fell apart. No, this must have been a struggle that he had for some time, and it was manifested now in a way that we can see really like how he felt like God owed him. Right? God owes me for what I do. God owes me for the good things that I do. Then he said to him, did not my heart, so he went, so, um, um, so, so, so he went, he, when, he, when he saw Elisha, and Elisha said, where did you go? And he said, your servant did not go anywhere. So again, a lie. Then he said to him, did not my heart go with you when the man turned back from his chariot to meet you? 
Is it time to receive money and to receive clothing, olive groves and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male and female servants? Elisha's probably not the one you want to lie to. Therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. And he went out from his presence leprous as white as snow. And so the punishment that Naaman had came upon him and it was immediate. It was severe. Okay? And, and again, maybe some people will ask, like, why didn't you give him a chance? Well, uh, maybe Gehazi knew better, right? Like he was the servant of the prophet of God. He should have known better than to fall into this. Um, but that was, that was the end of him. And, 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 you know, and, and it, said, it said what? Cling, cling to you and to your descendants. Like this is a very big consequence that is happening to him because of what he did. Any comments? Yes. Um, so I, r I remember reading something uh, from Ezekiel chapter 18, I believe, where uh, Ezekiel was talking about how there wouldn't be any punishments that would be like generation to generation. It would just kind of stay where, like at the person that did the deed. Um, so how do we how do we understand like uh, I guess it kind of goes back into the idea of original sin in a way but like just more specifically in this case how do we understand uh, like cases like this where uh, prophets or men of God uh, they would re rebuke or curse someone and then like would add that comment of your descendants as well. So anytime that we read in the scripture about some punishment that's going to affect the descendants. It's, it doesn't mean that this punishment is, 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 is for them because somehow God is judging them for the sins that their parent committed or their ancestor committed. It is saying that you are going to be affected as, as a natural consequence because of the sins of your parents. So for instance, let's say this man is a leper, okay? then it's very likely that the people that he spends his time with might catch the leprosy too because it's just by contagious. Like as you touch the skin, you, be can, you can get it as well. So if you're spending a lot of time with someone who is a leper, then you might also be a leper, right? Uh, a, a person, let's say, who is an alcoholic, let's say a woman who is an alcoholic or a drug addict, right? If she were to give birth to a baby while she's a drug addict, the baby becomes a drug addict from birth, right? That's not a punishment on the baby. That's not a judgment on the baby, saying that because you, you know, because your mom was a, you know, used drugs, then God is punishing the baby to have this addiction. No, but it's the natural consequence of the action, right? So, definitely, it's very clear, as you said in Ezekiel, that God does not punish the children for the sins of the parents, but it doesn't mean that the children are not affected by the sins of the parents. And, and, and that's very true um, in, like, for instance, if you have a family or, like, a couple who's very godless, right? Like, they, they're, they're godless. Um, they don't care about God or anything. When they have children, what is going to happen? Is a child going to become very godly just automatically? Probably not, right? Because they're not going to learn about God and all those things. So what's going to happen is the effect of the sin of the parents is going to affect the child just naturally. So it's not a judgment on the child, but it's just the consequence of the action. And on the flip side, if you have a couple who is very godly, it doesn't guarantee that their children will be godly, but it helps a lot, right? That 
that's going to be a positive effect. Again, that's that's not automatic thing. It's not God is saying like because you're godly, then automatically your kids are godly. No, but it's saying your actions affect others around you. Okay. Any other comments? the earlier section where you were talking about um, people who are in the faith kind of grow stale and cold in that and how the early church was mostly Gentiles and not Jews and kind of I feel like now you can make that comparison to like people who were born into the church versus those who convert into the church and so for those of us who are born into the church how do you not grow stale? I think it's important to understand the reasons why we do things because sometimes we are on automatic and we just go through the routine of things because we know how to do them without paying attention to what we're doing like this is very true let's say in the liturgy like if you were to you know at some point when you you learn all the hymns of the liturgy and you learn the structure of the liturgy and the liturgy becomes automatic and you can just kind of attend one and maybe even realize like throughout the entire liturgy i didn't even pay attention a single time right because it's just all so familiar to me or you could say well no i i have to force myself to be focused and it's hard to be focused like it can be hard to be focused for a long time but as you are pushing yourself to focus and you focus on the words that the, the hymns and the prayers like they become really prayer like they become prayer that's coming from me as opposed to just recited words the same thing with the egbeya Right, like people can who pray with the Agbe a lot can memorize it, and then it just becomes a sequence of words that I'm saying very fast, and um, you know, because that's my spiritual rule to say them. Or you can say, no, uh, I'm going to force myself to to ponder and consider and meditate on the words that I'm saying, and they truly become a prayer who's coming from my heart rather than just recitation. Right? So there's a lot of things that. Uh, so that that's one thing. This another thing is, um, I don't take the time to even learn even the things that I have. So like, for instance, people who are have been in the church for a long time don't even pray with the at all or um, don't come to like midnight praises or don't attend Bible studies or don't listen to sermons or don't learn hymns. or So like you have access to all these tools available to you, um, but you've never made use of those tools, right? So that's another example of I think someone who could be here for a long time and just taking it for granted and not really using it. Whereas someone coming from the outside Maybe their mentality is like, wow, like there's all these things and I want to learn all of them because it's just so much to learn, but I want to learn them and I want to attend this and I want to learn that and I, and I ask questions. So, you know, it's kind of like the difference between like a child and an adult, like, you know, an adult, it's very easy for them just to take the world for granted for what it is and be cynical, whereas a child looks at everything with fresh eyes, you know, like with wonder. And so, so like we're trying to rekindle the wonder in ourselves because the thing that is wonder or wonderful in the church is not just like the rites, but it's like the meaning behind them and the God who we're worshiping, who is always present, you know, um, like, you know, like, like King Solomon, he says in Ecclesiastes, he says what, like there is nothing new under the sun, right? The, the sometimes people are seeking new experiences and new things and new prayers and something new, right? But but the scripture says the thing that becomes new is us. Like we are the ones that are renewed. So if I am renewed, then I see everything as new. It's not because the thing outside of me has actually changed. It's because I have changed. 
And the more that I change, and the, the more that I see the thing that's been there all along with just fresh eyes and a new perspective, and experiencing God more in it. So I think that's how those, the p- and this applies to converts too, because it's just a matter of time. Like it's a matter of time before a convert becomes, you know, old school, right? So, so there is a, there is, there's all these seasons of change, right? So, so we go through them. And, 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 and at some point in that, we have to kind of realize that we don't just doing these things because everyone's doing them and because we're told to do them. We have to undo them with understanding. We have to do them with intention. We have to do them with paying attention to what we're doing and, and fully utilizing everything that's available to us. And, and it's a spiritual work, right? It's a, it's a spiritual work that we're asking God to grant us the joy of prayer and the joy of worshiping and the joy of his presence and fully m- manifesting that in our life. That is how we protect ourselves from becoming old and crusty spiritually. Um, just being kind of like a spiritual old person, you know, <laughs> um, in a spiritual sense. Okay. Any other comments? Yes. So you mentioned earlier how it's very difficult for us when, when you're when someone like Gehazi, for example, like symbolically or just even as a, as the sickness that he has, if he's around certain people, like it's very it's very difficult. It's very unlikely that his sickness is not going to transfer to someone else, or even if he was to have a child, whatever. So how, if that's the case with us, right? Like with like with the environment that we're in, like especially like you said earlier, like uh, when we're born into the faith, uh, majority of us fall into the trap of being stale. So if we live in a society or just in a community that's stale, how can how, is it is it what's one way to snap out of it? I guess you could say because like it's it's everything is just kind of like you know like it, it's not really talked about to be attentive. I guess you could say intentional to just kind of. So, I think it's about your perspective. Like, what is life? Because if if you if you consider life to be just a sequence of days that are kind of mundane with regular routine and things, um, you know, and that the world is essentially has, you know, I have a lot of goals in my life that I, that I want to attain and, um, y- you know, like, and I'm very attached to the world and the things that are in it and my desires in it, that I'm like part of the system and I'm part of the world, unable to see the world clearly for what it really is. Even when we speak, like we use the word salvation a lot. Like we say, well, we're working on our salvation. We're asking God for salvation. Well, what is salvation? Salvation means that we are, we're asking to be saved from something. So if we are asking him to be saved from something, then that means that we are in danger, that we are in need of someone to save us, and without that salvation, we will perish, right? Like I use the, exi- like the image in my mind of like a person who's drowning in the ocean. That person is in need of salvation. And then, like, this Coast Guard boat comes with these sailors on it. And they throw you a lifeline. And then they pull you into the boat. And imagine the boat is like the church. What is your feeling going to be in that moment? Like, you're going to be, like, so thankful. Like, everything, like everything's going to be great. Like, that boat is going to be the most beautiful boat you've ever seen. Right? But that's because you, you understood that you were in danger. Right? And that danger is all around. 
because even as you are on that boat, if for whatever reason, if you were to jump off that boat, if you are not in that boat anymore, you're going to be back into the water where you're in danger again with the sharks and everybody, right? So if you see the world as being the ocean that's threatening and that if I'm in it apart from God and the church, then I am in danger of, of perishing, then I will appreciate the church and what God is offering me. But if I see the world that I'm in as actually being a great place, you know, it's a place where all my dreams are going to come true in it and all the things that I want to acquire in it and have in it and all the relationships that I want to have in it and all the things that I'm attached to that I'm clinging to so much in it, then, then to me, the world becomes my God. It becomes God to me. And in that point, anything that is telling us to distance ourselves from the world, to not give our flesh what it desires, to fast from the good things that, you know, that we want in the world, that suddenly becomes nonsense, right? Because how do I justify, like if my whole goal is to enjoy myself in the world and to be happy in the world, then anything that prevents the ultimate happiness that can be achieved in the world, that in itself is nonsense. You know, so, so if you see, the, it's all about your perspective of what the world is. If we see the world as being a great and wonderful place that we want to live in, then really the spiritual life doesn't make any sense. Because all we're doing is denying ourselves a lot of those enjoyments. But if we see the world as a dangerous place that is actually the domain of Satan, and, and that if we live our lives to indulge in the world, it actually will, will lead us to hell, then we're like, no, I want nothing to do with this place. Like, get me out of this place. Like, wh what do I need to do to stay on the boat? Don't 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 put me back into the water. So, I think that's very important. Our perspective on what we're doing here, and why are we here, and what you know where we're going. Yeah, it's like tennis. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like, like I agree with everything that you said. Um, but I feel like there comes a point where you're on the boat. And like, like you said, it's been so long that you forget it's salvific. Like the only relationship you have with this boat is that it saved you. And I feel like we have to transition from like, I have a fear of hell to like, I desire to be with God, right? Like the boat itself, minus all the drowning and whatever's outside of it is a place to be desired. Not just because it saves you from like, it, I don't know, like, yeah yeah no i totally agree right uh, and so right, how yeah. do you how like i feel like the staleness is when you you can't push past the well like i feel like you almost have to be drowning again to to appreciate the boat right but that's just a terrible so cycle. so in my analogy being on the boat is not just like baptism and that's it right. in my analogy being on the boat is like an active spiritual life and if you have an active spiritual life then you will experience the joys of being with God and that will be a motivator for me to keep going. So, so definitely. I mean, um, the people who experience like great physical pleasure don't understand that the spiritual pleasure is far greater. What can be attained like the spiritual pleasure that God can grant us is far greater than any physical pleasure. And this is why when people speak about heaven, they speak about it in terms of like trying to understand it in terms of physical pleasure. Um, 
like like I use the example of like, you know, if you think about like when you're a kid that you had like your favorite toy, whatever it might be, that if as a kid, if I were to remove that toy from you, you would start crying because you wanted it so badly, right? But now as an adult, if you think back to it now, you're like, well, I don't need that toy. Like I don't, I don't have any desire for that toy now. And if I were to take it from you, you probably wouldn't care, right? Because what changed? Like your nature changed. The thing that you used to desire and thought to be the greatest possible thing ever is now of no value to you. And the same is true about the spirit. Like in the world, we have so many desires that we can't even imagine a time where we wouldn't desire those things. This is why we struggle with this battle between the spirit and the flesh because our flesh is so powerful that we want to give it what it seeks because it is such a powerful pleasure that we receive from it. And we can't imagine what it would be like not to, not to desire it, not to desire those things that we desire in the world, right? Like I was reading this article about someone who's asking, you know, commenting on when Christ said that in, in heaven there is no marriage, right? So for many people on the earth, the idea of being married and having like a close, intimate relationship with another person is like the greatest thing that you can imagine. And some people wait for it for years and decades, right? Thinking that this is like the ultimate joy that can be attained. But then when God, when Christ said, but actually in heaven there is no marriage. So like, how is that? Like, how is it possible that the greatest thing that someone can seek and desire in heaven doesn't exist? Like, what kind of heaven is that? So then it says, well, because maybe the, the types of joy that Christ offers us is so sublime, so much greater than what we can comprehend, that we can't even understand it, right? We can't even understand. So those people who seek God sincerely and fervently in their life now begin to experience a taste of that heavenly life now and to see and experience the love of God and the mercy of God and the joy of being with God now and that becomes the motivator to keep going. That becomes the motivator to keep fighting and to keep struggling against the flesh. But only if you taste that. Because if you don't taste that, then again, it's just, I have to follow a bunch of rules that I'm being told to follow, and I don't understand why they're so important. I'm told that they're important, and I'm told that if I do them, eventually I'll understand, but I don't understand yet. So that's why. Um, and, and yes, I mean, a lot of times we do do things without fully understanding, and we have to do it in faith, believing that, that what Christ said is true. But there are moments where we maybe have clarity, and we understand, and we, we see that there is this, this what we're doing is actually real, and it does bring this great joy, even if those moments of heavenly joy are fleeting. But they're like God telling us, keep going, and this is what you will have. Like, keep going, and this is what you'll have forever. So... Definitely, I, I agree completely with what you said. Like, like it's not just about fleeing from the ocean, but it's appreciating what is it that God is leading us to. Yeah. Nahum, you have another question? <laughs> <laughs> okay, we can pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. We ask, O God, that you help us to see the world as, as it really is, and to see our part in it, and to see how you are leading us, O Lord, out of it into your heavenly kingdom. 
We thank you, O Lord, for all the examples of those you have given us in the scripture who have sacrificed their lives so we can see how much they cared about you and how much you are able to work with them. We ask, O Lord, that you work with us as well and you help us to enjoy, O Lord, the service that you have called us for, whatever service that might be, and to always remain close to you. And, and we ask you for the forgiveness of our sins, to grant us, O Lord, victory over our, our weaknesses, to heal us from our wickedness, to, to change us and transform us, and to make us, O Lord, to love the things that you love and hate the things that you hate. We thank you, O Lord, for your mercy and your patience. We ask, O God, that you continue to lead us and guide our church and all churches in every place for the salvation of the world. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, the community, the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace. The peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen. And also with your spirit.